Well, here we are, Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, did you read it during the week? Did you get that um, so helpful little ping on your phone in the morning that Andrew sends us and wakes me up and <laughs> I have opportunity to pray for him? <laughs> yeah. um, 1 Samuel chapter 8 uh, is the next section we're going to do. John Woodhouse uh, led us in... Uh, the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, and here I am standing in his shoes. Let me tell you, wearing his shoes, I would get blisters. He has much bigger feet than I have in terms of... I mean, he was my teacher. He, was, he, he lectured me, he taught me Hebrew, and here I am trying to pick up after him. Let me do yourself a favour, and you can download his sermons, catch up during the week, listen to his messages to get an understanding of where this is going. But here we are in chapter 8, and there's a problem for us, I think, as we come to this, and that is, like, we're, we're trying to insert ourselves into a story as if we understand. Uh, the language is for me. I mean, you heard it read. You can understand it. You've, it's there in front of you. You can read it. But we're going back into a culture that is so vastly different from our own. We're going to a time that is totally, totally different to our own. Please, as we do it, don't make the mistake of thinking, yeah, yeah, I get this, I understand it. If you do, you'll probably miss some of the subtle things that are going on. There are significant things in the text, in the narrative, that you, you might miss. You'll make a cultural faux pas and misunderstand what's happening. We, we actually need to change gear and go slowly and listen and understand so that we can really appreciate what's happening. We need to listen to what's going on. One of the problems that people actually have, if you look at verse 19, is that they don't listen. This, this was brought home to me in a very, very real way while we're on holidays, I must say. Um, we, we went to see the kids in Sweden and, um, you know, you get a lot of jet lag if you travel from Sydney to Sweden. And so what we tend to do, Belinda and I, is we take a couple of days to wash the, the jet lag away before we, we're with the family, you know, just to make sure we're at our best. So we, we, we put ourselves out. We went down to Italy and uh, had a little bit of time there. <laughs> <coughs> and um, uh, we went to Sicily. And, uh, um, and we had to get a ferry from Sicily to the mainland. Now, I put it into the GPS, and there's enough tension when you're sitting on the left-hand side of the car driving. I mean, that's wrong. Changing gears with your right hand, that's wrong. And you're driving on the right-hand side of the road, that's wrong. So there's all those tensions going on for me, um, and Belinda is very helpfully navigating, as well as the GPS. So I've got Siri in one ear and Belinda in the other, <laughs> telling me where to go, sometimes quite bluntly where to go. And, 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 and that's especially a problem when you arrive at the place the GPS says you should be, and it quite obviously is not. The GPS, with that horrible ease, just said you've arrived at your destination. We were sitting in the middle of a street. There's nothing there. There's no ferry. There's no way to get on a ferry. This is ridiculous. And Belinda said, have you been listening to me? And we had a gentle op opportunity to strengthen our marital ties. Um, and... Um, uh, and I said, well, actually, darling, I've heard everything you've said, but I wasn't listening to you. <laughs> True? True. I, 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 I had heard. Oh, boy, I'd heard. Um, but I hadn't listened. Uh, I, I think that's a problem for us when we come to a passage like 1 Samuel 8, any 
Old Testament stuff. That it's familiar, but we don't know it. We hear it, but we don't listen. And that, interestingly, is the very problem that people had. They didn't listen. My question to you is, are you listening? You can hear me, but are you listening to God this morning? Let me pray. Uh, Father, as we um, come into your word together, I pray that we would listen to your spirit speak through these words and into our lives. Amen. Well, I've cheekily um, taken the title this morning of Two Ways to Live. Um, if you're familiar <clears throat> with Two Ways to Live, it's a way of explaining the gospel to people. Um, it's probably got a copyright and a trademark and I've broken all those rules, but uh, uh, let them sue me. The, um, the reason I've, I've used it, though, is because really we are confronted very boldly in Chapter 8 with two ways to live. We're either going to live the way the nations do, the way the world does, or we're going to live God's way. What choice are you going to make? What are you going to do? Which way will you go? And I think we need to just pause again uh, and listen because we use the word king a lot. You've sung about it already this morning. Um, king enthroned in majesty, I think, was the line that was there pretty clearly. And we all sang it. Uh, we talk about God being sovereign, Jesus being sovereign and Lord. They're all king titles, the anointed king. But we've used that language here together this morning, but what do we mean by king? What is it to have a king? I think Australians really struggle with this. I mean, we have a king. <laughs> All my life we've had a queen. Now we've got a king. Yeah, big fears, really. I mean, it hasn't really changed much for me. Um, I, I would say, or I could say, that maybe it's changed the coins I use, but I've got to tell you, I, I don't think I've used a coin for a long time. Um, I wouldn't even know whose head's on it and whether it's Charles or whether it's Queen Elizabeth. We have a king and it's hard to understand what we do with that. Um, we, we're catching up with uh, my son-in-law, Marcus, with his family. We get to spend some time together with them. And uh, look, they, they are so good. They, they've, they speak English. I don't speak Swedish. Um, they try really hard to have good conversation with us and try to understand more about Australia and, and as we chat. And they said, so, um, uh, is, is Charles, he's, he's, he's the king of Australia? I said, yes. Yes. Uh, how, how is he the king of Australia? I said, well, um, and they said, because he is in England, right? Yeah, he's in England. So how is he the king of Australia? Uh, yeah. Look, that's a long story. Now, because for them, you know, the, the, the king of Sweden, is, he's in Sweden. And uh, um, it, I think just about everybody I've met, uh, in Sweden that is, they have a story about when they saw the crown princess or they saw the king because they kind of get out and about amongst the people. They, they've seen them. Um, I've never seen King Charles, um, even when he was only a prince. I've, I've, I've never really had to engage with what the king does for me, you. So when we talk about a king and how important the kingship of Jesus is, what are we actually talking about? What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, that was one of the problems that Israel had. 
They didn't understand what it meant to have a king. They lived in the time of the judges. And the time of the judges, if you read through the book of Judges, it had a fairly set pattern of how things would go. It wasn't a good time. Four times in chapter 17, 18, 19 and 21, you get this little refrain through the book of Judges. At that time, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a mess. Everybody did what they wanted to do. Everybody did as they saw fit and it was chaotic and it was a mess. <laughs> there was a pattern actually uh, that you can see if you read through the book of Judges. It's called the cycle of Judges, but I think it's actually more like a spiral. And that is um, the people would sin, the nation would sin. Together they would go against God entirely. And then God would judge the people, bring about some disruptor, some catastrophe, uh, the, a battle that they lose or a, a crisis that they face. And then he would wait for them to repent. And eventually the disruption would bring, lead them to their knees and they would repent and they'd come back to him. And when they repented, he would appoint a judge, a leader over them. Now, the judges were not judges like we have. They didn't have wigs and sit in a courtroom. Um, if you look at the NIV, you'll see that each time the word leader is used in chapter 8 or in chapter 7, there's a little footnote that says, or judge. Well, if you've got an older version where it says judge, the little footnote takes you and says, well, leader. Actually, that's what the judges were. They were leaders. They led God's people. And when God's people would repent, he would appoint a new leader for them. And there's some great ones. You know, there's Gideon, uh, Samson, uh, and Deborah. And they would lead God's people into a time of peace. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we've come to a time when Samuel is the judge. And if you read through from chapter 4 to chapter 7, you'll find that pattern, that spiral, has been at work. There's been sin, there's been judgment. The people actually took the Ark of the Covenant as a lucky charm into battle with them. <laughs> that is against everything God wants. Uh, his presence is to be worshipped and recognised, not used as some kind of lucky charm to win a fight. Well, that's what they did. They lost, 30,000 are killed, they repent, and Samuel's appointed as their leader and they have a time of peace. But then the pattern breaks in chapter 8. In verses 1 and 2, you can see where the pattern breaks because rather than God appoint the next leaders, Samuel does. <laughs> it's like he's setting up a family business, he gets the boys a job. And they are hopeless. They are so corrupt. They are leaders in the patterns of this world. They look for corruption and bribery. They look for ways of preferring justice. They are terrible leaders. Now, why would Samuel do that? I mean, it's not the first time it's happened, by the way. A Gideon, who was a judge, great judge, great leader, um, his son, well, Gideon didn't appoint him, actually, Gideon's son Abimelech, he tried to take over. Uh, his name means son of the king. Um, maybe he took it to heart and thought, yeah, I'll give that one a whirl. He made himself king uh, and it ended disastrously. The, the country went into a civil war. It was a mess. But even in the book of Samuel, Eli had appointed his two sons to take over from him. 
disaster. You don't set up your family business. God is not using dynasties. That, doesn't, that isn't how it works. And yet Samuel appoints his sons and they are a disaster. And so the leaders come to him and they say, so subtle, so kind, you're old. <laughs> now, we don't know how old Samuel was. Okay, we don't know. Um, one commentator said he was 59. I ignored him immediately. <laughs> 59 and old. You're kidding. Goodness me, the only way I see 59 is in the rear vision mirror. There is, I, saw, I read another one that said he was 110. I'm going with that, all right? I'm going with, whether it's true or not, we don't know. Uh, but he's old. And here's the... There's a logic here that I cannot get my head around. Um, they go to him as the leader and they say, you're too old to lead. You've put your sons in. That was a rubbish decision. So now we want you to appoint a king. <laughs> what? If he's a rubbish leader and he's too old to make decisions, why would you ask him to, to do that? Well, anyway, they do. They ask him to give them a king, but it's not just give us a king. I mean, God has said you can have a king. Go back into Exodus and Deuteronomy, read the law, there's provision for a king. But they don't want God's king. They want a king like the nations around them. You kind of, I find it hard uh, to be too critical of that view. There's a logic to that as well. That is, the people of Israel have been at war with the Philistines. They've been at war with the Amalekites. They've been at war with the Jebusites. They've been at war with the Vegemites. You know, they just fight with everybody. Um, thank you for listening. Um, <laughs> and and they, they keep getting their... Well, if, if Gavin was here, he'd say they're getting their butts kicked. They lose. So you would look at the nations and say, hang on, they have a king, they beat us. Therefore, if we have a king, we'll beat them. You see that? There's a logical syllogism there. But it's not God's way. God's way is not to go the way of the world. In fact, he calls on his people throughout history to be different. He called on them in the Exodus to be different. He called on them to be holy. Holy can mean pure. There's a truth to that. But it also means distinct, separate, called out, different. God's people are called to be different, to live differently. Why, even in the law, you, you've got a different diet. You've got a different calendar. You've got a different rhythm. You've got a different way to worship. In fact, you will worship a God who is not seen, whereas all the nations, they want a little God that you can see, or maybe a big one, but so long as you can see it. No, no, no. God's ways are totally different, but they want a king like the nations. They want to keep up with the Joneses. And when you do that as God's people, it's not just that you make yourself keep up with what's happening in the world. You have to go against God. You have to reject his ways. And that's what they're doing. They're rejecting God. And God makes that clear to Samuel. When Samuel goes to God in prayer, he's offended on God's behalf that they would request a king like the nations. And God says, no, 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 they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. Keeping up with the Joneses will never get you into a good place. 
It'll just make you like the rest of the world. And if we are God's people, we're not to keep up with the Joneses. We're not to say things uh, that will compromise what God has said. We're not to say things that would water down what we've been instructed to do. We're not to change things that God has set in place so that we can be more contemporary. And I can tell you, um, at a, a recent meeting I had with church leaders from different places, one of them said, and I kid you not, he said, the Bible is 2,000 years old. We really need to change the way we view that. I mean, it's not really contemporary, is it? Meaning, that's old and ancient. We need to find new ways of understanding. In other words, let's give up on what we've got written and see if we can interpret what we want. That's a disaster for God's people. And God says to Samuel, let them know what their king will be like. It will be a disaster. You try and keep up with the Joneses. You try to be like the nations all around you. It will be no give, all take. This king will come in. Look at verse 11. You can see it. He, he lists out all the things that will happen. Your, your children will be put into military service. They will run in front of chariots. That is not a career. That's a job. Because you know how long you're going to last in front of the chariots? <laughs> Until the first wave of arrows comes your direction. Uh, and then you notice he says they'll be put in charge. Some will be commanders of thousands and some commanders of fifties. That is a totally new way of doing war for the people of Israel. That is the way the nations do it. They amass thousands. Uh, Israel had always been a confederation of tribes, never one single army. But now he's going to make an army. But it goes on. Not only will he sacrifice your children in his battles, he's going to, he's going to take whatever you produce. Your land will be his land. Uh, your crops will be his crops. Your children will be taken by him, your daughters even. <laughs> You're going to lose a tenth of everything you earn every year just for him. That's what you want. It's all take, no give with that king and that type of kingship. How different is the kingship that God designs? How different are God's ways? They are totally, totally, totally different to the world's ways. So that when the king does come, Jesus, he says, I came to serve, not to be served. I came to give, not take. To give my life as a ransom for many. When Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, on trial, Pontius Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> how, how much more clearly can you put it? He is not a king like the nations have. That's what the people wanted. So often that's what we want, to be like the world. There have been debates and disputes about all sorts of things in our society, in our community, and they're ongoing. And the pressure on the Christian and those who want to follow Jesus and have him as their king is to actually compromise and be like the world, to take on their values, their ways, their standards. But that's not God's way. God's way is made clear in his word. That's why it's so important for us to understand that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. We're different 
And we should have a different king. That's King Jesus. Are you hearing me? Let me, let me read a bit more. This comes from a letter that Peter, the apostle, wrote. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. To be different. Did you hear me? Or are you listening? Yeah. Listen. Amen.